Lift every voice and sing Till nothing heaven ring Ring with the harmonies Of liberty Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Here Together podcast from the Philadelphia Orchestra. I'm Tori Marcioni, and this is a space to hear from the artists and activists working hard to improve our world. Today, you'll hear from Reverend Mark Tyler. He's a community leader, co-host of a daily radio show on WURD, and for the past 13 years has served as pastor at Mother Bethel Church in Center City, Philadelphia, the oldest African Methodist Episcopal congregation in the U.S., founded back in 1794. It's a prestigious, powerful, and inherently political position, one that Tyler takes seriously. That's why in 2011, he and the Mother Bethel congregation joined dozens of others to form Power Philadelphia, an interfaith coalition focused on mobilizing its membership to support causes ranging from funding education and affordable housing to climate justice and living wages. Much like the icon we celebrated on Monday, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Mark Tyler fuels his vision for a better future with faith and puts the active in activism. But if you had told a teenaged Mark Tyler that such comparisons would be made decades down the road, he probably would have called you a liar. Or maybe something worse. What was the role of church in your life growing up? And at what point did you decide that getting into ministry was something that might be for you? Well, church was not very important at all growing up. Um, I joined as an adult on my own when I was about 19 or 20. The only person that I knew that went to church all of the time was my grandmother. And when I went to visit her, I just started attending her church, which was AME, and had no idea this, you know, rich family legacy that we were a part of. Um, and I've discovered this by putting together um, our genealogy and um, just kind of doing, you know, family research. The oldest ancestor that we know for certain in our family was, uh, his name was Jesse W. Devine. And he was born in Pennsylvania, of all places, in 1818. And he was an AME minister. Uh, he actually visited Mother Bethel, where I pastor for a conference in the 1860s. Uh, we pastored in the same areas in Ohio. Um, it's, it's just an amazing kind of overlap. But uh, we didn't have, we've not had another preacher in our family officially uh, since him uh, before I entered the ministry. But I would be remiss not to include that that grandmother, uh, we all believe she had a calling on her. But she was born in the 19-teens before the AME Church officially recognized women in ministry. So, you know, she was forced to do other kind of things, but her real calling really was, you know, ministry. She was one of the strongest uh, unofficial ministers in our congregation. Everyone looked up to her, including the pastors. And uh, it's just a shame that, uh, the, that the rules of the church prevented her from really living out that calling. My mom was kind of that generation that said, um, she'll let us grow up and make that decision on our own and didn't force us to go to church. And um, I'm not sure that was the best decision, given all the trouble that we ended up getting into, uh, the kind of trouble that could either leave you uh, incarcerated for a long time, uh, dead, or um, just like strung out on drugs. And so 
Uh, I mean, you know, my first year and a half or so out of high school was pretty traumatic. These were uh, the summers where we had the most homicides. Uh, I lost a number of friends uh, in those summers. And, you know, the real conversation among many of us was, if I make it to 21, um, what I'll do. And I mean, so though, you know, that was really where I was. So coming into the church was such a shock to everybody because, you know, nobody saw it coming. And immediately I felt at home. All of these family and friends were extremely happy and rejoicing. You know, many of them had known me as a child. They knew my mom very well. They knew the kind of life that I had been living. And um, so I know a lot of them were praying for me. Um, Was there like a rock bottom moment or a calling moment where you were like, I I need to go to church. Like something's got to change. Was it like that or was it a slow kind of, all right, grandma, I'll come to church with you? No, it was, it, it was, so my experience and my transformation was absolutely a, a result of hitting rock bottom. And, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing to look back now at, at my age and think that, that my rock bottom was at 18 and 19 years of age. Um, but, but it was. And so, um, you know, what, what we call the game is something that just eats you alive. And that's, you know, that was my only job. That's all I did 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so, uh, you know, I committed fully to it. And it is something that just like in a movie, it starts off great. It's, you know, um, you know, it's the fast life. It's a lot of money. I mean, we I mean, we had thousands of dollars in our pockets all the time. Uh, we had fast cars, new cars, you know, women, everything. So the first few months is wonderful. And then all of a sudden the drama comes, right? And friends, you know, start, you know, um, lying to each other. And I mean, you know, business deals go bad and you don't know who to trust. Uh, the circle starts to get tighter. Uh, and then you find yourself hooked on the drugs that you're trying to sell. And for me, that's ultimately what led to my own uh, rock bottom. And so, you know, I remember, you know, kind of realizing that I was at a point where I'm selling drugs just to stay high, where you you get, you know, things given to you on commission. You just want to pay them off and then you use the rest for yourself in this rationale that the next time will be different. The next batch will be different. I'll get back on my feet. And so, um, you know, I remember being in, it was at my mother's house. We'd never really stayed there for a year, my um uh, the folk that I was involved in, we were always like somewhere else, like in hotels or motels or friends' homes. And But I found myself back at her house because, again, you know, you hit rock bottom, money becomes tight. And so, you know, I'm like on the floor in her room, I mean, in my room, in the dark, like on the floor, literally searching for like any remnant of like drugs. And so it was in that moment that for me, something just triggered. And was like, I mean, literally like a question in my mind, like, how did I get down here? And not like physically down here, but like, I don't even understand how I got down here. And so I got up that night and I went downstairs and I started listening to a record. It was, uh, never forget, Frankie Beverly and Mays, which is still one of my favorite groups. So I'm listening to their new album, and back then albums had in the insert 
you know, a bunch of things on the back, and then the insert would also have different messages. And so they had a poem, and the poem was called Gaining Through Losing. So I read this poem, and it was just like so intriguing because I'm thinking, you know, I spent my last year gaining through taking, never like gaining through losing. It's like that doesn't even make any sense. Like how do you gain by giving, right? Um, and so I finished reading it, and I was like, man, I really wish I had something else to read. I hadn't read much in like over a year. And I started looking around, and there was an old Bible um, down, you know, down in my mom's, like in one of the little TV stands or something in the living room. And so I found it, opened it up, and just started reading. And uh, it fell open to the Isaiah text that talks about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I read like all night, went to sleep for a little bit and woke up and felt like I'd slept for days. I mean, I hadn't had that that kind of sleep in like a long time. And so that's what drove me to sit down to my grandmother. And I went down and started talking to her. We had this all-day conversation. So that was the turning point. And for about a week or two, I was good. And then I fell back into it. But I wasn't the same anymore. And I'll never forget, I was uh, one of the persons I was doing business with you know, we got into altercation with a guy who owed us money, and there was gunplay, and so, you know, the person I was with pulled a gun on the guy, and I, I jumped between them, and I'm, like, trying to stop him, and so after the guy, you know, runs off, he looks at me, and he says, you're going to get us killed. You need to make up your mind to get your head right. Now, he meant make up your mind and get back in this, and I was like, you know, you're right, and that's kind of where I started to recognize that I can't exist in both these places. And from there on, I started that real hard grind of like, you know, stopping to use drugs was the hardest part. And then um, turning my back, paying off all my debts, and um, then enduring the ridicule of my quote-unquote friends because I had no car and I'd walk, so I'd, I was walking and taking the bus. You know, I was like their favorite punchline now, you know. So it was like, uh-oh, here come Bible boy. You know, hey, Mark. Read us a story. Tell us about Noah. And man, they just like crack up and fall, you know, on the, on the ground laughing. So, yeah, so it was funny to them. But I was like, you know, I'm good. And, and consequently, within that year, you know, some of them were killed. And other dramatic things started to happen. And then everybody started looking at my decision differently. And, you know, started coming back and wanted to talk to me about, you know, how I did it. Um, and so... So that, so that has also been like one of the foundational moments in the friendships that I've continued to maintain. I mean, I've always, we've, that was like my first fraternity. I grew up on a block with about 12 boys, and we were together from the time we were little until, you know, we became, became young men. And so, and so we often always laugh about, you know, kind of the ways in which they treated me at that moment, but then even how they changed as well, and ultimately in their own ways found their way out. And they weren't, they weren't always the same ways, but they, too, ultimately found their way out. That's awesome. That's so annoying that they had to, like, Bible boy make fun of you. So. <laughs> that uh, was the best, though. Hey, Bible <laughs> So was there any anxiety, reticence, awareness when you decided to make that step into leadership, into ministry of, like, how am I going to stay one of the good guys? How am I going to not let the power of being a leader overwhelm me with ego. Was that a conversation that you had to have with yourself? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, people are people. 
And there are a lot, there are a lot of people that I've met who have gone into ministry for the right reasons. And then I've met some who sometimes you have to question. You know what I mean? It's like, is it just because it's the family thing? Is it just a job? Is it just a secure paycheck? Is it because you think this is easy to do? Is it because you're a raging narcissist and like to hear yourself talk? Yeah, I mean, is it is it that, you know, that it's all about you and this is a place where you can get a lot of attention? And, I, you know, I think that is certainly some of that for everyone. Um, but I never, so Bishop Hildebrand, who was kind of like my mentor, uh, he was one of our professors, uh, and really helped guide me to Mother Bethel, uh, because that was a political process as well. I didn't know until after I became pastor all the stuff he did behind the scenes. But, you know, he would often say in our classes, he had just retired as an active bishop when he taught us. So we were really fortunate to have a person with that kind of wisdom. And so he would often say, some of the best people that I've ever met are, were in the church. And some of the worst people I've ever met were in the church. And, and, I, and I appreciated the balance. And so I've never really gotten into the, the church is filled with all these bad people or all these good people. It's just filled with people. And look, none of us are above becoming the bad people at any moment or the good people. So we all have a daily choice to make to, you know, to to do the very best that we can. Go tell it on the mountain over the Jesus Christ is born While shepherds kept their watch For silent flock by night Behold, throughout the heavens There shone a holy light I'm telling you, go Go, tell it on the mountain That was an excerpt of Go Tell It on the Mountain, performed by a string quartet of the Philadelphia Orchestra with vocalist Patrice Hawthorne from the October 12th Our City, Your Orchestra concert at the historic Belmont Mansion and Underground Railroad Museum. You can hear the whole piece at our website, philorc.org, as part of the concert honoring Martin Luther King Jr., featuring Reverend Tyler. Speaking of, let's get back to him now. So Obama was recently criticized for his critique of the slogan, defund the police. And that to me gets at a lot of sort of respectability arguments of like, if someone's asking for their humanity, do they have to make sure that the tone is exactly what you are comfortable hearing? And I'm wondering, as someone who is used to speaking publicly to lots of people and swaying them, what is your take on that? You know, the, I have to spend more time debunking what the term means than anything else. And once I do that and walk people through, so defunding means, right, do we really need military tanks in Philadelphia? No. Right. So should we have spent like, I don't know, whatever they cost, five, ten million bucks on tanks, and at the same time we don't have like officers who could treat mental health 
you know, mental health. And in Philadelphia, we have a high population of people with mental health. Walter Wallace's tragic killing illustrates that. Um, and so you start walking through the different ways that policing can happen because it's really a conversation about public safety. So we want the public to feel safe, every part of the public. And so when you kind of walk people through that, and we re so we start with there is a finite pie of money. And nobody is ever afraid of talking about defunding public schools. Conservatives love talking about defunding that. Their favorite thing to defund is Planned Parenthood. That's the first time I heard defund was them talk about defunding Planned Parenthood and women's right to choose and women's access to health care. You know, and they do it and they say, well, defunding won't make public education worse. It'll make it better. Right. Then that's what we want to do. Want to defund police to make it better. And so I think what Obama was saying, and I understand it because I have to fight it all the time, that just as a word. It is a difficult word to for people to understand when you put it with policing. Yeah. I feel like defund goes into even the Black Lives Matter slogan that it's like if you're getting to the point where you're in a semantic argument, you're so far beyond missing the point that we're not even having the same conversation. So it's like, yes, it could have been like a sexier, more palatable title, but I feel like there's just such a commitment to misunderstanding it that it almost doesn't matter what you called it. Well, but, but let me just say this. So, I mean, seriously, because so and, and I know so like in the movement space that that's the way that we talk about it. Right. And the truth be told, when you think about who is most impacted by gun violence in a place like Philadelphia, talk about black families. When I speak to like older black residents in West Philly and in North Philly, they are alarmed at the idea of defund. If they hear you saying, we're going to get rid of the cops altogether, which is what some people in the defund world say, because in the defund space, there are two extremes. And I'm not on the side that says abolish all the police in five years because I'm concerned about people in the community. And if you take the cops out in five years, then who, as bad as they are, do we then turn to vigilantes? Do we all carry our own guns? Do we resolve our differences? So I don't see that as a workable option, although I share the sentiment. So to Obama's point, I think that if we were to do this over again, we would have probably branded it something that was catchier. I mean, I give Republicans credit for this. They know how to brand stuff. And I mean, look, they, I can't, Ward Connerly, black conservative in California, to get rid of affirmative action, he called it a civil rights initiative <laughs> and everybody jumped on it even black folk until they read it and they're like whoa whoa what is this from a branding standpoint it was genius and it worked and so so i think there's the salesmanship of it versus what it actually is which is why i said that it it, it really needs to be a conversation about public safety because i mean you don't need the very people that you're trying to work for working against you because the term itself has turned them off. And I kind of believe that that was the kind of the art, the point that he was making. I don't think he's against, the, you know, what I believe in, which is that we spend way too much money into uh, the militarization of policing, thinking that that makes us safer. You know, I, I continually ask the question. So we have never said no to the police on any raise or any budget until this year when we fought 
to stop them from getting this extra money in COVID-19 when every other budget was slashed, by the way. And they just wanted more money. To, I don't know what they were going what kind of toys they were going to buy. So they have $770 million, almost a billion dollars a year. Homicides have risen at a record pace. Their clearance rate of homicides is abysmal. From a business standpoint, I say to my conservative Republican friends, you're the ones who are always saying, you know, ROI, return on investment. Is that a good return on investment? $770 million and you clear, what, maybe 20 or 30% of the homicides? That means they're like killers running around the street. So obviously, policing as we do it today does not work. So let's take a realistic look. It is not communist. It's not radical. It's not leftist. It's common sense. Policing does not work, in addition to all the racial issues as well. So uh, defund has a long way to go. Uh, we do see that people are getting beyond the title and beginning to understand what it actually means and are less afraid of it. You know, um, and, and I will acknowledge, again, that there are people within the movement when they say defund, they do mean a zeroed out budget in five years. And they do mean like no police and no jails ever again, to which I say that's as a Christian, that is obviously my ultimate goal, because I preach about a day where heaven be happens on earth, where the lion and lamb will lie down together. You certainly don't need police and jails with, with that kind of vision. Can we do that in five years is... Probably not doable, at least in my mind. You know, I ask questions like, so what do you do with, I mean, I don't know, like pedophiles and rapists and murderers. Do we just literally open the jails and just tell them to just go and behave now? So, so there's some real intense conversations that are happening in the space. I enjoy having the debate. Uh, I love the activists, you know, who, um, who, 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 who are locked in that way. And as I say to them all the time, I'm not disagreeing with you. Again, our timelines are different, and how we get there is different. But I think if at the end of the day we keep the goal in mind, then we don't have to hate each other because we don't agree with how to get there. To hear him tell it, activism and religion seem like perfectly natural partners. After all, they both deal in hope and depend on community. You can find more from Reverend Tyler talking about the role of faith in current movements for equity and justice, and how he's carrying on Dr. King's legacy as part of the Philadelphia Orchestra's Martin Luther King Jr. tribute concert. Check out philorc.org for more. Like the gorgeous rendition of We Shall Overcome that you're about to hear in the outro, which is my cue to hop out of the way. So until next time, thank you so much for joining us. And remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment, share, and tune back in next month for another episode of Here Together. We